Welcome to season four of Libya Matters. In this season, we're looking at what justice really means. More than a decade after the 2011 uprising, after more than four armed conflicts, after at least three international political processes, and impunity for uncountable violations of human rights law and international humanitarian law, with an incredible lineup of guests, we reflect on all this and the findings of LFJL's year-long survey all across Libya on what Libyans' perceptions of justice are 10 years on. All with the aim of bringing a nuanced understanding to all matters Libya. I'm Marwa Mohammed. And I am Alham Saudi. Let's go. Disclaimer. This interview was recorded remotely, so you may notice reduced sound quality or minor disruptions. Welcome back to Libya Matters. Today's episode is slightly different. Our format as well as my co-host. Ilham won't be joining us today, but I still get to geek out on all things migration and refugees with May. May, how are you today? Hi, Marwa. I'm doing well, thanks. And I'm super excited to be delving into the issue of justice for refugees and migrants with you today. Anyone that knows either of us will know that migration and refugee protection is something that we could talk about for hours Um, But we will try to be as succinct as possible. But really, it's a very complex issue with so many different layers. So I'm really looking forward to getting into it with you, Marwa. And we also have an exciting guest from the House of Lords joining us a little later in the episode. Great. Thanks, May. So let's jump right in. So you might remember back in season one, we spoke to Matteo de Belize about migration in the central Mediterranean. Migration and refugees has been a reoccurring theme in the different uh, seasons that we've had because it is, like you said, May, a complex uh, issue that plays into the overall context of, of the Libya situation as well. The last conversation we had with, with Matteo was in 2019. In season two, we explored with Valentina the legal alternative channels. And today we're taking another look at refugees and migration, but from, again, another angle. Just to kind of recap from 2019 and where we are at today, a lot has changed. Yet, sadly, a lot is still very much the same. The crimes committed against refugees and migrants continue where actors operate with complete impunity. We have not seen any steps towards the improvement of situations um, for the refugees and migrants in Libya. But we have seen new actors come to play with new crimes, but the system overall remains very much intact. Over the years, really nothing has changed. And we'll go into more details of of how this plays out in the episode. As you say, Mara, these crimes are ongoing and the situation now for refugees and migrants in Libya is dire. And there is so much that needs to be done by the Libyan authorities and by the international community to put an end to these crimes. And as you said, we've discussed this in previous episodes. So What we want to do for today's conversation is to move in a slightly different direction. And as we hopefully move towards a more holistic transition in Libya, we want to start thinking about how can we build refugees and migrants into the transitional justice process? Because currently, and this is the case for many other situations globally, refugees and migrants are being left out of the equation completely. So what I want to ask you, Mara, is why is it important that migrants and refugees have access to transitional justice mechanisms and what would this look like? Thanks, May. I think that this is um, a very important question 
and also very timely as there is a kind of, you know, a re-emergence of these conversations around transitional justice and obviously looking at what justice means for many Libyans on the ground, which is the theme of this season. I would say one of the most important elements of, of of the transitional process in Libya would be to ensure a integrating a component for refugees and migrants within this process. And so what would that look like? It would also, it would include the crimes committed against migrants and refugees in a national truth-seeking mechanism once we're there. And I know very much that when this was explored in the past and continues in, in conversations today, this is very, very much absent from the conversation. Refugees and migrants do not have a stake in this process. So I think it is important that we start the conversation around that kind of inclusion. So that would also include allowing migrants and refugees that are victims to access reparations, including financial compensation. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, Mara. And actually, we're going to be talking to a, another guest in the next episode about uh, what a reparations program for Libya could look like. But you're absolutely right that migrants and refugees should be, um, should have access to, yeah, to, to reparations for crimes that they've suffered and they should be included, even though they're not Libyan nationals. And I think that's for a long time, that's been the issue in, within the conversation is that, well, they're not nationals, therefore they don't have the same rights as Libyans, right? I mean, well, largely in terms of um, the, the the framework that exists today with regards to refugees and migrants, that's very much the case, right? I don't think that this is being explored on the transitional justice, you know, uh, process in and within itself to then kind of exclude them due to to not being nationals, and I think that there's been no thought process to begin with. So I think that a starting point is to start incorporating this as part of the, the transitional justice uh, conversation for Libya. On the other side, with the current situation, yes, they very much do not have rights. And, and I think that looking at you know, immediate remedies that, that could kind of address the ongoing problem, it, number one, obviously, would be accountability for the crimes committed, but also looking at, you know, Libya's taking steps towards um, recognizing refugees by recognizing UNHCR through an MOU or signing on to the 1951 convention. But that would be a first step in, in terms of allowing that very, very basic fundamental principle of access to asylum. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're talking about legislative reform, uh, which I think is an important part of the transitional justice process. But maybe you could just, we could take a step back and you could tell us, you touched on it before, but you could tell us about where Libya is currently in terms of an asylum framework. Um, and yeah, just go into a little more detail on what you mean by recognizing the UNHCR and where that would take us sort of long term, what Libya would need to do in order to ensure sort of the full rights of refugees and migrants. The the recognition of UNHCR, because currently, I mean, let's take this step, one step back. 
Um, currently, in, in the situation that exists today, Libya is not party to the 51 Convention, which is the Convention on, on Refugee Protection. It does not recognize UNHCR as an entity, therefore does not recognize the, the legal status of, of refugees as, as a status. Um, and, and, that, and what that means is ultimately extending protection to individuals who need, who need that protection. And so in the absence of all of that, Libya also does not have a domestic asylum law. So there's no asylum framework that protects uh, individuals that, again, are in need of that protection. So in the short term, Libya should recognize UNHCR, sign a memorandum of understanding that would allow UNHCR to carry out its full mandate in the country um, and extend that kind of protection to individuals, uh, to asylum seekers and refugees. But it also should look at, in the very, very long term, eventually setting up its own domestic asylum law. But I just also, I feel that it's important to note that Libya is party to the 1969 um, OAU Convention on on the Rights of, of Refugees in Africa. And so... Um, recognizing UNHCR or not, the OAU convention does give spirit to the 51 convention and is also, Libya then has the legal obligations uh, under the regional convention to recognize refugees. But irrespective of all of that, Libya is party to international conventions on, on human rights, including the Universal Declaration, the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights, and, and a whole area of other uh, international treaties and conventions that are tools and legal obligations that Libya has to protect fundamentally individuals on its territory, irrespective of whether they are asylum seekers, refugees, or uh, or migrants. They are on Libya's territory, and, and therefore Libya has that international legal obligation to protect them. Yeah, and I think recognition is, would be a first step, a gateway to be able to access transitional justice mechanisms when they are put in place. It's really a prerequisite in order to be able to enjoy their full rights as citizens, um, especially if, if refugee status has been been granted. Um, and I think reparations and, and other sort of transitional justice initiatives is, is an important part. And if you, you know, regardless of whether you've been sort of granted or given in writing this, this status as a human being, you have rights to be able to seek remedy for harms that you've suffered. So you're right. I think that would be, you know, it's a crucial first step getting Libya to to recognize the principle of asylum because at, at the moment we're just not there. And I think a, a sort of touching on what you were saying as well, another important part of that in terms of the migration management system is making sure that we're vetting the individuals that that comprise of that system and that migration management officials and anyone in public office uh, is subject to a vetting process to ensure that, you know, people that are known to have committed uh, human rights violations are banned from holding those positions. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that as well, Mara. 
Absolutely, May, and I, I agree with you. I mean, there there has to be a vetting process um, on migration management. I mean, there has to be a vetting process on all things in, in, in Libya um, that we continue to advocate for. But I think one of the other essentials towards this kind of justice process is to prioritize the uh, effective investigations of crimes and violations committed against refugees and migrants in in Libya, because there is, again, an environment of impunity that prevails. And without these investigations, with with the aim to identify the perpetrators and bring them to justice, this will continue. So that step will not only be a step towards justice for the victims, but it will also be a deterrent towards future uh, crimes. And so ultimately, I think that there are a lot of steps that need to be taken to improve the situation for migrants and refugees, some that can be done immediately, like we said the asylum, the recognition of UNHCR and allowing for that um, access to asylum. But also what is very important is that we start having the conversations around transitional justice that would be inclusive for refugees and migrants in truth-seeking and access to justice, their right to truth, and and then uh, ultimately reparations as well. Yeah, absolutely. And these are certainly important conversations to be having. And in the same way that we surveyed the Libyan population to find out their views on how past and ongoing human rights violations should be addressed, the findings of which can be found in our Perceptions of Justice report, a similar survey directed at the migrant and refugee population needs to be conducted to find out how they want to be built into the transition. However, in the meantime, given the current limitations they face at the domestic level and the fact that many survivors of these crimes are no longer in Libya, having claimed asylum or being returned to their country of origin, one tangible way to provide justice to refugees and migrants who have suffered grave crimes uh, would be for the International Criminal Court to investigate these crimes and take the necessary steps to bring the perpetrators to account. As we have heard in previous episodes, the ICC has had jurisdiction over Libya, over the Libya situation, since 2011. However, the court is yet to open a case on crimes committed against migrants and refugees. Exactly, uh, May. And that's actually, in fact, the research that we particularly worked on Uh, and developed over the course of several years. And in November 2021, we, in collaboration with uh, the European Centre for Constitutional and Human Rights, ECCHR, and the International Federation for Human Rights, FIDH, filed an Article 15 communication to the ICC, uh, arguing that the atrocities committed against refugees and migrants in Libya which included enslavement, murder, torture, and rape, amount to crimes against humanity under the Rome Statute. This communication then urgently demands the ICC to open 
an investigation into these crimes. At the same time, uh, off the back of that communication, we published a public report, which can be found in the notes of this episode. And the report is very much a simplified, shortened version of the ICC communication, which also includes firsthand accounts of survivors from survivors detailing the systematic and widespread abuse of, um, they experienced in Libya. It also offers an overview of the findings on crimes against humanity as presented in the ICC communication. The report also analyzes the European policies and actions that return migrants and refugees to Libya. Um, And so we take a look at how the European policies, including the training of the Libyan Coast Guard, have contributed to the overall system of abuse of migrants and and refugees in Libya by training the Libyan Coast Guard, who then intercept and return people uh, to Libya, who are then immediately, arbitrarily and indefinitely detained in, in these detention centers and then go through that whole cycle of abuse that we explain in, in the public report. Yeah, no, the current system is extremely problematic and that definitely includes Europe's involvement. And we as an organisation have been very vocal about what we believe to be Europe's complicity in the crimes against humanity suffered by refugees and migrants in Libya and you know as we do a lot of advocacy on on these issues and we're endeavoring to take a solution-based approach to this situation as well as calling on the ICC to open an investigation into the crimes committed in our public report and in our bilateral advocacy that we conduct with various stakeholders we make a number of recommendations the most urgent of which is for the EU and its member states to immediately put an end to the interceptions at sea and returns to Libya and instead facilitate the disembarkation of rescued refugees and migrants at a port of safety in Europe where their rights can be safeguarded. This would require investment in restarting European search and rescue activities in the Mediterranean and would also involve suspending any existing agreement in relation to migration management policies and refraining from entering into new ones with the Libyan authorities, including the Libyan Coast Guard, until it can be ensured that any support or assistance, so may that be training, financing, uh, or capacity building, um, so any of that assistance does not undermine the fundamental human rights and freedoms of migrants and refugees. In tandem to doing that, European states should support countries of disembarkation, such as Italy and Malta, by massively scaling up their resettlement and their resettlement policies, but also safe and legal pathways for refugees, as well as migrants from all countries of origin along the central Mediterranean route. Absolutely, May. And I think that we endeavour to take a solution-based approach to our advocacy, right? And, And so to kind of give concrete recommendations in terms of of what this would look like. I guess my question to you, May, would be, in addition to calling for an opening of an investigation by the ICC into the crimes committed against refugees and migrants, um, what would be the most urgent recommendations that we could also call for? I think, for me, the most important change we need to see is the ending of all 
uh, interceptions at sea and return to Libya. So this practice goes against the principle of non-refoulement. Um, and, it, you know, it's a clear, in my eyes, it's a clear um, violation of, of international law. We should not be continuing to return people to Libya where we know their safety could not be guaranteed. We know there has been numerous reports, you know, over several years. This is something that Umar have been working on for, for many, many years. The international community is, is fully aware of the situation, which we, we're now analysing as, as a situation where they face crimes against humanity. You know, it's a situation where they are not safe. Therefore, we cannot continue to keep returning people there. And whether or not um, we like to admit it, European policies, you know, are directly ensuring that that is, is what is happening. So by trying to limit the number of arrivals to Europe, instead they are trapping people in Libya. So... Yeah, as I, as I say, the, the most urgent thing is to stop returns to Libya at all costs. The, the system as it is, is not working. Can I can I just kind of poke the bear a little bit and, and play devil's advocate? Because this is a, what you hear a lot, right? That, in fact, the training that we provide is life-saving. Yeah, no, that's really very infuriating. And it's something that we're presented with a lot by saying that if, as the EU, we were to stop training the Libyan Coast Guard, then more people would die at sea. And I think that that's just not the case. We've seen with the evolution of the operations in the Mediterranean, so starting with Mare Nordstrom, actually it was very successful in, in the number of, of rescues and limiting the number of deaths at sea. And in that case, rescued people were taken and disembarked in Europe. And what we see now is in order to limit that, there has been the complete halt of European search and rescue, and in fact also the obstruction of NGO vessels and merchant vessels that are trying to do these life-saving operations. So really it's not the case that if all training or support to the LCG was stopped, that more people would die if the gap was filled and European search and rescue was, was restarted. Exactly. I, I absolutely agree. I think that while there have been some search and rescue operations um, that are particularly the ones that take place in territorial waters are important, but um, it really is more in an in, in inception than a search and rescue. Um, but I, I mean, taking this back to kind of the concrete recommendations and what else, you know, would we like to see um, as, as really steps of, of good faith, right? We want to see the international uh, community, particularly the uh, European member states and the EU, who are putting so much into the training of the Libyan Coast Guard to balance this out by taking other steps. And I think that one of the things um, that we've been advocating for for quite a while is the what and and frankly what we do not see and complete is completely absent from their migration policies is the um safe and legal pathways yeah absolutely and i think in terms of um people on the move in general and if we start to think about i hate to use the word but solving the current problem um then a, a holistic approach um that includes access to, to visas and labour migration is, is really important. And I think 
I just want to make it clear that um, we often, the two of us, like we use the, the term refugees and migrants uh, as one term, but actually they are two very distinct distinct terms and there are differences. Um, and I think for, for the refugee population, uh, migrants is slightly different, but in terms of refugees, and another way that the European countries can show solidarity with refugees and provide this concrete protection would be by uh, increasing resettlement slots. Um, as you said, from countries, directly from countries of origin along the central Mediterranean route. So that would um, negate any pull factor to Libya and it would actually stop refugees from having to travel to Libya um, in the first place, thus disempowering smuggling networks and, and protecting them from from having to be subject to these crimes. So resettlement is really a, a key tool uh, that we can use. And also in terms of sharing the responsibility, because a lot of the pressure for current European policies comes from um, the first countries of asylum, so Italy, Malta. Um, and if the rest of Europe was able to share the, the, the responsibility, then there would be much less of a strain on, on these first countries. Absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, it's also part of not just, you know, the uh, Southern European countries, but when we're looking at countries in, in Africa um, that uh, that are hosts to large numbers of, of, of refugees, um and you know, and then you see these policies of of returning people from the UK to Rwanda, where they're processed. It 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 is very much a, a, a sh- basically kind of shifting this further down and and away from European borders, which is which is very problematic. And so I think that um, recognizing that. It is this international um, cooperation and 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 responsibility to um, to to collectively find you know solutions and and so that would also include resettlement and I mean I can go on and on about the importance of of uh, of resettlement and and safe and legal um, pathways. Our guest for today's episode is a leading voice on issues related to resettlement and the asylum system, uh, particularly in the UK. So I think now would be a great time to bring him into the conversation. I was lucky enough to cross paths with him recently um, at a workshop and heard him speak about his own experience as a refugee and his lifelong mission to protect the rights of refugees and to highlight their valuable contributions to host societies. Lord Dubbs arrived in the UK in 1939 as a refugee fleeing the persecution of Jews in Nazi-occupied Czechoslovakia. He is a British Labour politician, a former member of Parliament and current member of the House of Lords. He served as the director of the Refugee Council in the UK between 1988 and 1995. And in 2016, Lord Dubbs tabled what became Section 67 of the Immigration Act 2016, by which UK local authorities admitted unaccompanied minors housed in EU refugee camps. It is safe to say that we are in capable hands for this next part of the conversation. So, Lord Dubbs, welcome to Libya Matters. Thank you. Thank you for letting me take part in this. It would be great if we could just start uh, with asking you, um, first off, 
what is resettlement and how can it be used um, to protect refugees generally, not only um, in the Libya context? Look, um, I, th- I, I think that um, in terms of the resettlement of refugees, uh, I think Europe has to look very hard at how we do it. I don't think Europe is doing it well, and I'm critical of the British government as well. Uh, and our job surely is that when people flee for safety, we should give them a chance to develop their lives, to, to, to resume education, to get jobs, uh, and generally to have a context in which they can, they can live, live like everyone else in this country, rather than, rather than as people who suffered enormously from persecution in the country and war in the country they fled from. So we have a responsibility to make this work, uh, and I think we can do a lot better than we're doing, both the UK and Europe. But no, absolutely. I think um, it's great to hear that you're critical of the British government. Perhaps you could tell us more about what you think the flaws are with the current asylum system um, in in the UK, but in Europe as well. Well, let, let me let me start with the UK. It's a very big question. That what are the flaws? What are, what are the flaws with, with with Britain? Look, we've just passed some legislation, uh, the Nationality and Borders Act, uh, and I think that takes us a long way away from the 1951 Geneva Convention, which after all is the is way in which refugees should be treated and which sets the international background. So I, I think uh, the British government seems to want to prevent people coming here rather than accept those that are refugees. I was uh, critical some years ago when there were a lot of child refugees in Europe and I got some legislation changed that they could, that they could come to the UK. Uh, I wanted the arrangement uh, whereby under the EU, there was something called the Dublin Treaty, and under that, a refugee child in one EU country could apply to join relatives in another EU country. So, say, a, a, Syrian, a Syrian boy in, in France could, could apply to join parents or an uncle in, in, in say, the UK. Uh, uh, that we wanted to continue even after Britain left the EU, uh, but unfortunately, although it passed Parliament, in the subsequent legislation, the government took it out. And, and the basis of family union is surely fundamental to, to, to refugees and, and, and why one country should be able to accept them. The other problem with the British government policy is that they're saying that if uh, that a refugee should claim asylum in the first, quote, safe country that they reach. First of all, that is not part of the 1951 Convention. Uh, and it, it means that virtually nobody can claim asylum in Britain because, of course, they have to come through other safe countries first. So it means uh, if we go back to 2015-16, when a lot of Syrians reached Europe, uh, they all reached Europe either in Greece or Italy, which means that, that the million refugees that Germany took from Syria would, would have all been in Greece or Italy. So it's not practical in, in theory, and it's not... It's, it's, it's not in line with the 1951 Geneva Convention. Uh, so that is wrong. The British government also wants to penalise people who, uh, uh, who who come across by what they call illegal means. Now, given that there's no other way of coming except across the channel in some way, it means they're actually penalising anybody who reaches Britain to claim asylum. So I think that is wrong in principle. And there are a lot of other criticisms I, 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 would, I, would, I would make make of the... Uh, British government's legislation. So what we're doing is is creating a, a, an unsympathetic or hostile environment, and that is surely quite wrong. What we're seeing happening in the central Mediterranean with the pushbacks is that we are moving 
further away from the spirit of the 1951 convention? Yeah, well, I was I was on a committee some time ago when we looked at Operation Sophia, I think it was called that, and that was really an attempt by the EU to catch the traffickers. Now, catching the traffickers is, is fine. That's a, that's a laudable aim, because traffickers are evil people. But um, what happened was that um, we, we didn't catch any traffickers through that operation, but we, we saved a lot of lives. Because, uh, but then what happens, uh, what happened, as I understand it, is that, is that when, when, the, when in Libya, we can come onto Libya, um, the, the traffickers get people uh, onto boats or dinghies. Uh, as soon as they're outside Lib 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 Libyan territorial waters, they ask them to phone up and ask for help. Now, that, that worked to save lives. A lot of the shadowy process in the Libyan end, but it worked to save lives. However, then the EU countries started saying, no, we're not going to do this. So the Italians started pushing away boats. And they pushed the boat away, uh, away, away to Spain. And, and, and these, I think, breached the 1951 convention and made it impossible for people to reach, reach safety coming across, coming across the Mediterranean. So we have, we have a really difficult situation there, and I think that continues up to now. Uh, I went to a conference in Malta some time ago, and, and we, we were trying to see, uh, talking to countries, about people coming here. Now, look, uh, can I say, and this is what the people from Nigeria and so on said, said that um, uh, their people come because they, they have no jobs, they have no chance of a decent life. So maybe they're not refugees, but they cross the Sahara. Once they get to Libya, they're held in, as I understand it, in very uh, prison-like circumstances. Uh, uh, and then if they can earn enough to pay, then the, the, then the traffickers take them across the channel, so across the Mediterranean. So that's not satisfactory. But of course, the other refugees, they, they come from countries w w where there is serious persecution, uh, Somalia and other parts of the Horn of Africa. So we have a lot of people who are victims of persecution, uh, who, who are in real difficulties. Uh, and I'm afraid the Libyan situation is, 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 is really tense uh, and a very unhappy one. Thank you, Lord Dubs, for um, for your inputs and for joining us here today. Um, just to to kind of feed into what what you were saying uh, right now, uh, lawyers for justice in Libya, uh, along with two other organizations, published a report in in um, in November twenty twenty one around. Uh, the crimes committed against refugees and migrants inside of Libya. And, and basically what we analyzed were uh, the widespread systematic nature of the crimes in which we then um, determined that these crimes may amount to crimes against humanity. We've also submitted a ICC Article 15 communication um, calling on the ICC to urgently open an investigation into the crimes committed as crimes against humanity. So it's very, very much, um, you know, exactly what you were saying around uh, the situation. Many of them are, are now pushed back or, or uh, intercepted and returned by European um, trained Libyan Coast Guard. And so we have been exploring different remedies or different um, uh, you know, opportunities in which to assist uh, in which the European member states should 
um, should help improve the situation. And so I guess my question for you is, you know, part of this kind of justice, uh, you know, this what would justice for refugees and, and migrants in, in these kinds of situations look like? And would resettlement constitute a full, um, a full remedy, noting that a lot of those in Libya are considered economic migrants? And, and so what would you say to that in terms of this overall conversation? Okay, um, that's a very interesting and, and, and an important question. Um, if I miss part of it, please, 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 um, please come back to me. Look, the right answer, as far as Europe is concerned, is I believe firmly there should be a Europe-wide policy on refugees, that Europe should have an agreed policy so we don't have the position where boats are pushed away from Italy or where the Germans took a million Syrians uh, when they asked for help, other countries didn't give it to them. I think there should be an agreed policy of shared responsibility across the whole of Europe. That may be a bit idealistic and we may be some time off it, but we should move in that direction. Look, we're seeing pushbacks as regards the Mediterranean from Libya. We're seeing pushbacks in Bosnia, uh, uh, pushbacks going on there. We're seeing the British government trying to push people back who try to get across the channel uh, from northern France or Belgium to to, to southern England. So we're seeing pushbacks, and pushbacks are entirely unacceptable. So we've got to stop that. Uh, and an ideal policy would be would be Europe, Europe, Europe-wide, Europe-wide agreement. We've also got to do things at source. In other words, uh, I believe that quite a few of the people who've got to um, Libya are refugees and would qualify as refugees under the 51 Convention. They wouldn't all, and I think we've got to decide how we handle others. And, and some of them have come possibly from Nigeria or somewhere in West Africa. Nevertheless, they are victims now because of the conditions under which they're being held in Libya. And, 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 and they are a form of illegal imprisonment. Uh, and, and I think you use even stronger language to describe that in asking your question. And I think that's right. And so whether, whether they start off as refugees, they've certainly been treated uh, as, as victims of, of very serious persecution. So, uh, so it involves a, a more sensible policy towards Libya as a whole. I don't know enough about the po- internal politics of Libya, but I think we, we, we've got to find some way of, um, of helping to establish a, a more balanced setup. I'm looking for a word uh, in Libya, so, so, so that some of these traffickers can't hold people in detention camps uh, in 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 in. in in very appalling conditions. So I'm going to look at that. We're going to look at the situation in some of the Horn of Africa countries. But above all, we've, we've got to be welcoming to people who are now the victims of persecution, who are the victims of war, who are the victims of all the things that the Geneva Convention was designed to help. Uh, and I think I think what it requires is a much better initiative by European countries. Look, uh, the, what Ukraine has demonstrated is that it is possible for European countries to cooperate uh, up to a point. I think I think the British government has been very slow at this, but it is possible for European European countries to to cooperate. Uh, now, look, uh, I'm mean, quite blunt about this. The Ukrainians are white. The Syrians, the Afghans, people from the Horn of Africa are not white. 
And, and there's no such thing as good and bad refugees. There are victims of persecution, whatever the color of their skin. And we, we've got to find a way. I welcome the warmth of the, of, of the West European response to Ukrainians, but it's got to be extended to people for, who are fleeing for safety from other countries as well. We can't just be, we can't just pick and choose because we like some refugees more than others. They're all people who are entitled to human rights protection under the Geneva Convention. They're all people that are entitled to have decent lives. So I, I, I do hope European policy uh, will not be allowed to go in the path of, down the path of saying, oh, well, Ukrainians, Ukrainians are good and the others are not good. That is not acceptable to me and it shouldn't be acceptable to anybody. Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree. And I think with a lot of our advocacy on, on many aspects of Libya, we always say um, that you, you, Ukraine should be the, the, the standard, not the exception, right? Um, and, and that extends to the refugee um, and uh, situation as well. But I just want to probe this one step further, if, if I may, in terms of um, beyond that kind of initial resettlement, what could the international community do to support refugees in accessing uh, justice um, for the harms uh, suffered? And, and I absolutely agree that the large majority of those traveling through Lib Libya should be extended some form of protection because of what they faced um, and, or, or even recognition on, on humanitarian grounds. But is that is access to resettlement or asylum justice in itself? Or what would justice look like even after that kind of resettlement process? Well, if I've understood the thrust of your question, I think what we should be looking at is ways in which we can help people to function, function, to operate, to be human beings and to have the same rights as the country in, to which they fled. Now, what it means is essentially that we have to be welcoming. We have to allow people to work at the moment, in, certainly in some European countries, like in the UK, there are limitations on the right to work. Uh, so it, it's access to work, access to education, healthcare, housing, and so on, and, and also family reunion. I think it's very important that when people have fled and they're the other members of their families, they shouldn't be separated from other members of their families. They should be enabled to, to, to be together, even if through the course of fleeing, they, they will become inadvertently separated. So I think what we want is people to, uh, to, to come to UK or whatever country, to be made to feel welcome, to be made to feel part of our society, and to be given as many of the rights of being here as possible. Uh, they can't just become citizens immediately, but they should be given uh, they should be given a full range of civil, civil, civic, and human rights, so that they can function. They can function. They can act uh, as human beings. And for many of them, it's access to language, which is a door. They, they must be the, the door to other things. Uh, I, I talked to some students some time ago, and they, and they they are desperate to learn English, so they 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 could move towards the job market. So language is important. Education is important, um, family union is important, healthcare is important, um, employment, uh, employment rights are important, all of these things, so that they, that they can then lead the lives they want to. If at some point in the future they want to go back to the country they came from, fine. But, but, but that, our treatment of them should not be based upon that because nobody should be sent back unless it is totally safe. And at the moment, 
the countries they come from are just not safe. Uh, so, uh, and, and secondly, of course, I think we should also um, make sure that our policies on immigration for non-asylum seekers are also humane and humanitarian. Now, each country can decide that, but I, I think we should we should have a sensible policy toward, towards uh, immigration as well. Uh, look, British job market, we have very low unemployment, uh, which is a good thing, one of the few good things about our government. Uh, we have very low unemployment, but, 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 but we have a lot of job vacancies, uh, and, 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 and it makes sense for us to be more relaxed about, about enabling people to come and fill, uh, fill the job vacancies because we need them. So another job vacancies club can be filled by refugees, but uh, they could be filled by other migrants as well. So we need a, a more sensible approach to, to all of this. Uh, and, but we have to tackle the situation in Libya. And I'm, as I say, I don't know enough about Libya in detail, but I think we have to find some international approach which will try and stabilize the position in Libya and not allow these camps to exist where people are held in detention in, in virtual slavery before, uh, before they can earn the money to go, to go across the Mediterranean. All of that has to be tackled as one overall approach to the Mediterranean, to the source countries, and then how we treat people in, in, in the various European countries. And the reason why I'm very, one of the reasons why I'm very keen on a Europe-wide policy on refugees is we don't want people to feel that only one country is good and the other country is bad because, you know, it, it, it's not sensible. It, it's not a way of sharing responsibility. And I think European countries should share responsibility uh, and that should be the aim of our policy. I couldn't agree more. Um, and there were so many gems in what you said and I wish we had more time to, to really pick it apart. So, I mean, thank you so much, honestly. Um, it's been great to start this conversation with you and I do hope maybe moving forward it's something that we can um sort of connect with you over um on our work on on this issue well can i say thank you very much indeed if there's any information about libya you can feed my way i'd always like to have that to see to see what i can do publicly but i very much appreciate your interest i appreciate the good work you're doing and please let's stay in touch and thank you very much indeed for, for enabling me to play some part in this project today absolutely thank you very much okay all, and good luck to you all the best okay Hello, I'm Myrna, Program Officer in the Research and Capacity Building Team at Lawyers for Justice in Libya. In this LFGL Explains, I shed the light on crimes against humanity committed against migrants and refugees in Libya. A crime against humanity is a deliberate criminal act typically committed on a large and systematic scale against a civilian population undertaken pursuant to a state or organizational policy. In its recent report, no Way Out, Migrants and Refugees Trapped in Libya Face Crimes Against Humanity, LFGL, along with the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights and the International Federation for Human Rights, documented several witness testimonies of crimes against migrants and refugees in Libya. Imprisonment, enslavement, murder, torture, rape, sexual slavery and forced prostitution and persecution were identified and communicated to the International Criminal Court in 2021 to urge the prosecutor to launch an investigation into crimes against humanity committed against migrants and refugees in Libya. Whilst the investigation of the fact-finding mission in Libya already indicated that crimes committed against migrants and refugees are suggestive of crimes against humanity. And in light of the deteriorating security situation in Libya, militias and armed groups, some of that were absorbed into the state security institutions and guards operating in the state-run migrant detention centers, turned to human smuggling and trafficking activities to generate revenue. 
As a result, thousands of migrants and refugees attempting to flee the conflict and atrocities are instead intercepted at sea by the Libyan coast guards and returned to Libya where they are captured, exploited and treated as commodities and a source of unlawful and criminal profit. Despite being aware of all this, the EU has intensified its border control measures through bilateral agreements, Mediterranean surveillance operations and training the Libyan coast guards to intercept migrants and refugees, making it nearly impossible for those fleeing crimes and violations in Libya to reach safety, essentially trapping them to face what we have found to be crimes amounting to crimes against humanity. In next week's episode, we explore... They're often about indigenous groups or other marginalized communities saying, you know what, that harm of the past has gotten worse over time. We we are in a worse place now than we were even at the time of the conflict or the direct violence because that violence put us in a subordinate position. And the minute you start to fall behind in society, the further and further and further behind you become. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Libya Matters, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is hosted by me, Marwa Mohammed and Alham Saudi. It is produced by Demiri Media. The people who put season four of Libya Matters together are Mae Thompson, Alexandra Azua, Marwa Mohammed, and me. It was made possible by contributions from the LFJL team, Mohamed Al-Misiri, Mohamed Al-Mustafa, Rawia Hamza, Christina Orsini, Mirna Nasrallah, and Jürgen Schur. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with the International Center for Transitional Justice, ICTJ.